and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Welcome everyone who is tuning in this week. It's so great to have you on. Before we get stuck into today's episode, I want to personally invite you all to our incredible and supportive podcast community. You will find us on Facebook under the group Challenges That Change Us. This podcast is where we explore stories of resilience, bravery, and the power of navigating life's challenges. In this episode, we delve into the remarkable journey of someone who has confronted significant complex trauma, navigated hardships, and emerged with a profound determination to create change. From facing misunderstood diagnosis to enduring bullying and family turmoil, Taylor has shown incredible strength in the face of adversity. She is a woman on a mission, and this will not be the last time you hear her name. I am certain she is going to pave the way for those behind her. We discuss themes of suicide, eating disorders, self-harm, and abuse. If this is not the right episode for you today, please skip it, and we will see you next week. If any of this content causes you distress, know that there is help available and call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Taylor's story is a testament to the human spirit and the pursuit of understanding and healing. Join us as we learn from her experience and her inspiring mission to transform the way we perceive and address trauma and neurodiversity. Let's get into this conversation. Hi, Taylor. Welcome to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you so much for coming on today. Hi, Ali. Thank you so much. Taylor, I love to start every episode with asking our guests what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal? It just helps us get a bit of an idea about you and some characteristics, how other people might describe you. It it was quite difficult on my end to try and pick just one animal. I had to go with a black cat. I love cats. They're a bit different. I'm a bit different, you know. Some people are scared of black cats. Some people love them. You know, um, it's it's a very unique animal. And that's why I think, yeah, it's probably me. You said you had trouble choosing one. Did you have yeah. a few more up your sleeve? Yeah, I did. <laughs> what were some of the other ones out of curiosity? At first thought, I was like, oh, maybe an elephant. But I'm quite short, so that didn't really work. I was like, oh, maybe I've got the memory of an elephant. Nah, not really. I just like elephants. So... <laughs> It makes me laugh so much when I hear people's different animals because I'm yet to hear someone say two animals and they be similar. Like an elephant yeah. and a black cat, there is <laughs> nothing similar about those two animals. Yeah, there isn't. But <laughs> at some point in my brain, they're like, yep, we're going to choose either one of them. <laughs> <laughs> you have a really big story to tell. You know, even trying to get through this in an hour is going to be challenging. Maybe I'm thinking the best place to start might be going right back to the beginning, right back to where your story started and going from there. I think the whole story started around 2008. I was just turned three and my biological father was diagnosed with stage two lymphoma. My family and I 
truthfully believe that he was never the same after that. His personality quite changed. He became increasingly distant. Um, and from what we believe and everything that follows on from that, it kind of started with that thought. And when you say everything that follows on from that, what does that mean for you? It was just different because our whole dynamics changed after this. Yeah, we went from a very, very, very normal family and, and it did change. In what way? I think he just became scared. And I think that's what started to like move forward. But that's when he, he at least started to change. So from there, in 2010, I started prep, otherwise known as kindergarten. My primary school years sucked, <laughs> like sucked really bad. I was brought up many different times from several teachers that I had Asperger's syndrome, as it was known back then, which they call it ASD now. And I even got assessed a few times. But really, back pre-20, I don't even know, pre-2016 even, girls just didn't get diagnosed. For example, like I had one assessor tell me, or tell my mum not to tell me, She's got, you know, some really bad social anxiety and, yeah, she's she's having some trouble with social situations, but I reckon she's just too smart for her own good. That was the exact words. I think she's just too smart for her own good. So basically from that, I got that only people with autism, they all have to have intellectual disabilities or at least girls. That was what they were trying to say. If I had got diagnosed then, a lot of different things could have been changing. But yeah, so they just labelled me as too smart for your own good and overly anxious. Because you have been diagnosed now, is that right? Yeah, I got diagnosed again because it was just so obvious. I was like, picture your Asperger's little boy, okay? But instead of being into like planes or trains, I was into things like the monkey bars. I was so obsessive, had no idea with social cues, but I just wasn't a boy when you say you're obsessed with the monkey bars yeah what did that mean in your world like how did that show up that's where I can really put down you know my very first like special interest as they say because the monkey bars were tailors and everyone knew that it got to the point where it was a bit obsessive to the fact where I would be going on these monkey bars all day every day I ended up getting infections in my arms because you know when you do monkey bars you get blisters but I didn't care. I would keep on going. I was always massive on rules. So if someone did something wrong in the line to the monkey bars, there were fights. Like I'm not a physical person, but you know, people were pulled off the monkey bars or pushed off the monkey bars, which I really regret. And according to the teachers, I'd set up a whole line system for the monkey bars so that I could be in control of how it was. And if anyone changed it, I did not like it. Let's just say that. <laughs> That was the kind of biggest thing in primary school. It was like the really small one. And that would get brought up for years. So I was quite a reactive kid. So if someone didn't do what was set out in the rules in my head, whether I, I can't remember if I would have told them or not, but I would, I would get quite reactive. And so then when I got older and, you know, I kind of learned a bit more emotional regulation, I masked a lot more as I got older. And they then would continuously bring it up about, oh, can't you believe this? She scratched her, she scratched this. I remember this, like just telling me all about my massive meltdowns that I had and really putting it to me like I was the devil child where I wasn't. 
I just was a bit different and didn't know how to regulate things when they didn't go to plan, whether in my head or anywhere else. I was so plan-driven. And so for you, years afterwards, people were still trudging it back up and saying, but she did this and what about that and, like, remember when? And what happened for you when they did that? Do you remember? I would just get so embarrassed. Embarrassed? Yeah, so embarrassed. I was thinking you were going to say really frustrated but embarrassed. Yeah, because I was four. Like, I don't remember doing that but that's not me now. So I would get really embarrassed whenever it was brought up because – you know, it's not a nice thing to do. And at the time, especially, I didn't know why I was doing it. So it kind of just sounds like a rat of a child if you're really thinking about it. Well, obviously now we know different, but you know, it doesn't, it's not a good look. And when it is continuously brought up by teachers, by so many different people, like I almost got kicked out of prep. I was brought to the like principal office so many times because they just couldn't calm me down. I was actually sent home from school several times due to these meltdowns. Apparently that's super common in people with autism. And it wasn't like these tantrums were just normal tantrums because kids have tantrums. They had a pattern to them and tantrums don't have patterns. So if there is a pattern to a tantrum and there is like a specific stimulus that causes this, The research now is that it actually probably isn't a tantrum. A tantrum is usually over something that someone didn't get or someone didn't want or something along those lines. When it's born into a pattern, it's too loud and it happens every single time it's loud. That's actually not a tantrum. What I was having was just meltdowns because I wasn't coping. And it sounds like they were consistent over a long period of time to similar stimuli that other children may not react to. So, for example, it could be something in the environment that was triggering those tantrums as opposed to you wanting something or needing something back in return. Is that right? Definitely, yeah. So that's that's what I would definitely say. So it could even just be that the teacher was substituted. I really struggled with substitute teachers throughout primary school because you're obviously usually not warned the day ahead of that your teacher's going to be away, right? So then you're used to being in this certain routine with a certain teacher, you know how to speak to this teacher in a specific way, and then all of a sudden that's all changed because you have this weird teacher who you've either met before or you haven't, and if you've met them before, it probably didn't go over very well. Because you were the kid that had the tantrum that day. Yeah, I was the kid that had the tantrum that day. And, or I was the one that was being difficult. They love to put, like, names on kids, like, oh, you're the difficult kid, you're the problem kid. I had my own corner in the principal office's room because I would just have a meltdown over something. Usually it was like an argument. I'd be sent to the principal's office to calm down because I I could not just emotionally regulate. My emotional regulation just was not there at all. I just, it really confuses me sometimes why it wasn't pushed more to get a diagnosis because there was obviously something wrong. They did try and keep me down in prep Uh, because they said my social skills were lacking a lot. I've never struggled academically. I actually excelled academically. So they were like, oh, we actually can't keep her back. We'll put her up to year one. But I did the enrichment learning. There was a few other girls and boys, and we would go to a different class and we would do like more reading or more maths or, you know, stuff like that. Just little things to try and make me not bored as much, I guess. I did get straight A's, but... Then when it got to handwriting, I always got a bad handwriting mark. And that comes into play because in grade three, I got the most horrible teacher I've ever had, ever had. She had me, I hated her, it was mutual. This teacher would refuse to mark my work because of my handwriting. So dysgraphia is like a writing 
learning disability, super common with people with ASD. And I had always really struggled with handwriting. And this teacher would refuse to mark my work with my handwriting. Now, my handwriting was readable, definitely wasn't the worst in the class, but yeah, it needed to be worked on. But you're also a child. Yeah. So I went from, in grade two, I had all straight A's. I went to her class and I was getting straight C's and a D. That's not normal. She just did not understand me and she would pin everything on me. If there was something missing in the class, Taylor did it. Something was wrong, Taylor did it. That was the worst teacher experience I had. It was brought up several times and no one did anything about it. When you say it was brought up, do you mean the behaviour or that they thought something was going on? Or Yeah, their behaviour. A normal kid doesn't just go from all A's to C's and D's. Like that's not normal. So they did bring it up and she just said that my handwriting was bad and that she couldn't read it. Like they weren't perfect. Maybe it was like more year one level than a year three level. But you could tell what I was trying to write. And Taylor, I normally would ask a question like this at the end of the podcast, but it's sitting there for me right now. When you're telling this and you're thinking back to that little girl, what do you want to say to her? Chill. Chill. She was so stressed and thought everyone was against her. But it sounds like that. Like I'm feeling like that as you're talking. My heart's bleeding. And also given what we know now as well and going back in time and thinking, mate, the support wasn't there. Yeah, they were not there at all. At all. And maybe through lack of awareness as a society, I'm not necessarily saying that it was a single person anywhere along the way, but it's like we know so much more now, but you can hear it as you're talking, all these little things that add up to really big experiences for a child. And this is like just the beginning. That's the thing. This is like we're not even into half of what's going to go on. And this is the base layers. And this is why like I I was going to say this more at the end, but I really advocate for early intervention and early diagnosis in autism, even if I know that people are scared of that label, but that label then you can give it to the school and they can then try and understand just a little bit more. They're not going to get it. No one is going to be able to get it unless you have it or know someone with it. It's just not going to happen. It just gives an ability for other people to understand. It has somewhere where they can start. So they're not just saying, oh, they're just a naughty kid or, oh, she's just being this out of trouble. No, she's not. Her brain works a little bit differently. And early interventions, oh my gosh, they have so many benefits. Speech therapy, I swear by speech therapy, I only just finished speech therapy. But if I had gotten that when I was younger, oh my God, that would have saved me so many years. I can hear that passion in your voice when you're talking about that. And you're saying, if we can do one thing now, it's like, let's acknowledge that space. And if a child needs support in that area, and maybe they look at the world differently, how do we best stand beside them and walk with them? And don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of it. It it can be super scary at first. And people think, oh my God, autism, that's like so bad. It's a lifelong thing. Oh my God. There's so many people that we know that actually probably were autistic, some of the brightest minds in the world, some of the best inventions, some of the greatest humanitarians were most likely autistic. But the thing is, is we don't, no one was really diagnosed until now, but the world's also changed. We're in more need of diagnoses in order to fit in now than we were back then. It wasn't as exposed back then, you know, you were in your community, not on social media, not on the news, you know. So Taylor, you mentioned that this is just the beginning and that there is such a bigger story that's about to come and unfold. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what the next chapter looked like for you? I'm going to skip a few years, about 2014. How old were you then? I was eight. 
my parents got divorced. But my parents' divorce wasn't your normal divorce. So basically, in December of 2013, we had all gone on a big family holiday to North America and we went to Los Angeles and Las Vegas, Lake Tahoe, that sort of thing. And my parents actually renewed their vows in Vegas by Elvis. It was my dad's idea. It was this big thing. It was like, yeah, 20 years or something. It was some sort of an anniversary thing. And, you know, we were all super excited. Mum got into like this like, wedding dress. It was all fun, fun, fun. But, yeah, then the February after that, Mum went on a work trip. She came home and his bags were packed. And he just left. He didn't say anything. He just went out the door and we didn't hear from him for six months. Nothing? Nothing. Oh. It actually wasn't abnormal for us kids. So we actually didn't realize anything was going on. He used to work away a lot. He used to live in different cities. But even when he was at home, it wasn't always a lovely family, family sort of time. It was quite eggshells. But yeah, so we didn't even realize that anything had happened until, and I remember this clearly, you know, he sat us down on the table. Taylor Swift was playing in the background. My mom loves some Taylor Swift. And my mum was crying in the kitchen and I was just really confused as to why. I have three younger sisters. One is, oh God, she's just about to turn 17 and one is 13. But at the time I was eight and the baby two and a half. Well, no, she would have been three. So we were really, really little. And that's where they told us what was going on and my dad wasn't living with us anymore. We kind of understood it. But yeah, that is really where things started to go down really, really bad. That was the, that's the starting point from where things just go boom. What does boom mean? So the boom means he ended up starting to take us home on Tuesdays. And so we started to do that. Everything seemed pretty normal, I think. It's, again, hazy in my memory because obviously it's a bit traumatic. But um, the abuse started. It was just verbal abuse. At first it was just super strictness. So we would have to, well, not, me it was quite targeted on me so we would have to you know when we got home we had a shoe rack he would knock all of that down you have to do all of this before you do your homework before you do anything before you have dinner before you have a shower you have to do this and it has to be completely perfect so I would do that sometimes I would argue with him because I was an argumentative child if I did argue at him oh my god all hell would break loose he wasn't violent towards us but he would break things he punched a wall in the bathroom area because someone wasn't doing something. He smashed glasses, broke toys, and he would do it just on these Tuesdays. And on these Tuesdays as well, he would just get so incredibly enraged. I don't remember really the timelines that well at all, but there were several times where my mum had to go over to the neighbours and tell them, you cannot call the police. Because we had neighbours all quite worried because it wasn't your normal... I don't remember all the exact words, but this wasn't a normal argument. Well, they could hear the commotion by the yeah, sounds of it. Yeah, they could. Everyone could. He was just foul. When my mum come home, he would just run out and just start being like, that Kevin fucking bitch, she did this, she did that, she did this. And just like say that all the way to his car. I ran away several times. I would go to my neighbor's house because my neighbors had been involved once just because he had threatened me, but never followed through. Like it was just threatened but I was absolutely petrified so I had run over to my neighbors and I stayed there and I hid in the bush so whenever things got bad I used to run there my poor neighbors is all I'm thinking like they can hear all this stuff going on but my mom said you cannot do anything and I was just petrified I was just running 
which is really hard to explain to people. It is hard. It's hard to describe the feeling. Yeah. The unsafeness. It's the feeling like you're going to die. Your body literally goes into fight or flight mode and mine said, you're going to die, you need to get out of there. This is not safe. You need to go. This is not safe. Oh, God. Yeah, my body was really good at telling me that and especially because I was so young, I'm really proud of the fact that I realised that. Really annoyed at myself for just leaving my sisters there. But thankfully, he did target mainly me because I was the oldest and I would talk back and, you know, that sort of thing. And Taylor, the tears that are in your eyes at the moment, if they had words, what would they say? Help. Yeah, because no one, no one did anything. But they were asked not to, and I get that. But it kind of, like, makes you feel more alone because it felt like no one cared. Yeah, that was really difficult. I've had to talk to my mum about that because we weren't even allowed to call the cops. And there was one specific situation where it had gotten pretty bad, like really, really bad. My sister had a had a like a weird trundle bed where you can open it up and it has like a desk. So and we felt went in there and put the desk shut and I had Rachel on one arm, I had Chloe on the other, and I was calling my mum nonstop and we could just hear him just like stamping around, just yelling at us. I thought I was going to die because I didn't know what was going to happen. Just because someone doesn't hit you doesn't mean that the threat of violence isn't there. Anyone you speak to that lives and grows up in violence says it's not the physical abuse. <laughs> That's what the external world hears. But when you're in it, the words, the feeling, the walking on eggshells, so many layers. It is so yeah. complex and complicated. Yeah, so he never hit us, but he did everything else and it was it was terrifying absolutely terrifying Taylor just for our listeners your dad is there now is that your dad that's in the same room (laughs) yes so we have improved our relationship we were non-contact for I don't know how many years it took a lot for me to start having a relationship with him it took several years And we're going to circle back to that part of the story, but it just, as you're talking, I guess I'm thinking this whole time, your dad's there, like as we're telling this story, you know, and this is part of, you know, the complexity of it and part of the full circle that can happen. It's the challenges that change us. These challenges, they didn't define me. I didn't, you know, live by them. I used them in order to help me become me. And, you know, I've had to take peace with some things and with some relationships. I still don't talk to everyone. I still am very, you know, I've got my boundaries set. You know, my dad, love him, but we don't have like a dad and daughter relationship. He's a person in my life that, you know, I can count on if I need. But, yeah, so it's, it's not your normal relationship, but it's it's a relationship. And that's better than what I could have ever asked for. He's much better. Much better. Unfortunately, that was not my mum's only bad choice she got another boyfriend and at first he was he was absolutely great he was the best father figure like my siblings and I could have ever asked for um he was really there really on he pushed us to do many sports he was just he was actually really really good and really good for my mum and really good for our family unfortunately alcoholism took over and when he was under the influence he was very physical cps were involved several times not just for us because he would attack friends and stuff like that but yeah it got to the point where I was just like no and he was removed from the home thankfully in that aspect I haven't had very good male role models because all of them even if I thought that they were good turned out to be really 
bad. And also, Taylor, within your story, everyone's constantly telling you that you're not okay. Yeah. That's what I'm hearing. It's like this constant repetition of you're not okay. You're not okay. You're not good enough. You're the problem. Yes, yes, I was a scapegoat for the family. Yeah, when everyone talks about like being the black sheet of the family, maybe that's why I do like the black cat so much. But um, yeah, if anything was going wrong, it was Taylor. Another thing when I was growing up, there was another girl who was my age and we were compared a lot to each other. However, she was meek. Like she was a very quiet girl and did what she was told and stuff. And I was never, oh God, I was, I was meek and quiet and no, I was very combative. I wanted justice, blah, blah, blah. But ask you questions why. And we were always just put against each other because we were basically the same age and whatnot. Anyways, when growing up, she was always praised for all of these academic stuff and for anything she'd do, oh, praise, praise, praise. I was doing the same things. In fact, sometimes my grades were better than hers, but because I had other issues, wasn't even touched on. There was a whole group of them and they used to just basically joke about like, oh, okay, so when's Taylor's next tantrum going to happen? Because we would go on these holidays and I would get overwhelmed. My mum had picked it out now. It's called my day three. So I can do up to three days, but that third day, I need a break. I will shut down. And again, patterns, it happened every single time. It was always that third day. When we were on holidays, they would just joke around about me. What am I going to break? What am I going to scream? What am I going to X, Y, Z? And they would praise this other girl. Oh, why can't you be more like, why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? Except I was doing those things. I just wasn't quiet. You can see where that strength-based approach comes in, can't you? Like no one was praising you for your strengths. They were just looking at the things you were doing that weren't okay. Very much so. Great segue. When I hit puberty, I had struggled a lot with my body image. I didn't even know what it was to begin with. I had grown up quite skinny and now I was becoming a woman and, you know, had curves and stuff. But I absolutely was just fuming. I felt uncomfortable. And my OT and I actually also think it's some of my sensory profile is that I don't like the feeling of my skin when it's certain ways. It's really hard to explain, but it's like, I literally don't feel like the body is my body because it's so uncomfortable for me. And so, yeah, that's when my disordered eating sort of started. It didn't get picked up on, but it's quite clear that that's when it started and could have went for, I found like old diaries and stuff. And I'm like, like she was 12 and 13. Like what? Because <laughs> what sort of things would the diary have said? It sounds really bad, but I would write down reasons not to eat. I would write down like tips I had found on the internet, certain diets that I wanted to try, like calories of things, how to calculate a calorie from a kilojoule. At 12 or 13? Actually 11 or 12, yeah. By 13, I, I was in it. I would spend hours of my time just writing in this book. I was in therapy then because... I had become severely depressed and I was always been anxious, but, you know, enough that I was, you know, in and out of psychologists, but nothing really stuck. And yeah, and then in year seven, I started self-harming. I was put into therapy. Yeah, I just remember feeling like really low and just, I think it was just that teenage time. I think everyone goes through it. Not everyone goes through what you've been through. Like you're telling your story and of course one of the lanes that you could walk down would be feeling depressed, eating disorders, self-harming, all of those sit in a category. of, And that is what I did. Yeah, but not everyone has the experience that you have that lead into that lane. Yeah, that is true. It's a bit unique. Yeah, it started there and it just got progressively worse, but I was still doing great in school. That's the thing. Absolutely fabulous in school. Like I was getting top grades. I was topping subjects. I was getting all these awards. It was fabulous. 
all up until the end of year nine because it's 2020. What happened in 2020? COVID. Prior to this, I was already going downhill. I think I was just burnt out. Like in 2019, I had been working two jobs, which I was doing very well at. I was doing all top subjects and I topped two of my subjects. I was doing life-saving and I was doing dance. And all of them, I was doing like to the nth degree. So obviously I just burnt out, and I imagine, because no one can sustain that for that long. I don't want to speak for the people in your world, but no one saw you. No. No, no, no. one saw the pain that you were suffering. No oh, one God, saw no. what was happening for you. And I didn't want them to because I was always told that, you know, you have to be perfect. Like that's kind of just been ingrained into me. Like you're not good enough. You're this, you're that. You need to be better. You need to be good. You need to be perfect. And it just gets strummed into your head so often that you're just like, I don't know what else to do, which is really hard to deal with as a young teenager. But yeah, so 2020 came along and I actually had my first admission to a psychiatric hospital. Oh, this is where I was diagnosed. I was diagnosed in 2019 with autism because I went to a specific psychologist that we went to her because of my eating disorder. I wasn't anorexic at the time, but I was, you know, eating a ton of food and then I would take a lot of like laxatives. So, which isn't good either. And I was very picky with what I was eating and I, I hadn't lost weight, but I just was, my relationship with food was definitely not healthy. Um, and it hadn't been healthy throughout the whole time, but it was just progressively getting worse. I started seeing her and she had brought up the autism and mum was like, yeah, probably it's been brought up X many times. So in 2020, I had just had a psychologist appointment and I told my mum, I'm like, I am going to do something stupid. And she's like, what do you mean? And so then I had, I think I did show her, I had stashed a box. So I had a box of things that were my things. And in there were stuff in there that were quite harmful. And so she was like, okay, well, we're going to go to the GP. He's like, yep, you got to go to Queensland Hospital. So then I went to Queensland Hospital and they're like, we don't have any beds. I'm going to send you to a different hospital. And so then I was admitted there. But I am really good at masking things. So when I was in there, they couldn't see anything because I got up, I brushed my teeth, I washed my hair. When I get into a place for the first few several days, I'm quite good at maintaining what they want me to do. And you won't even know anything's wrong with me. You'll be like, why is she here? You won't know. So yeah, I stayed there for, it's only a short-term admission. It was only like four or five days. And then I went home. That's when I started medication. It was two weeks and then I just kept getting worse. Uh, just worse and worse and worse. I don't know the number of times I was admitted to hospital for either self-harming or overdosing. It was out of control. I never got admitted to the ward again. They would just treat me in emergency or in the medical ward. But yeah, so in and out all the time. My poor mother is all I can think of now. And then that's when uh, Child and Youth Mental Health got involved, which is the Queensland version of CAMS. I had times where I would get better a little bit, but not really. My eating disorder was pretty stable at this point. But then in July, I had a very big suicide attempt and I had the cops called on me. And so they took me in and they were like this, this and this. And basically the Kim's person came in and said, look, we're not going to admit you, but we think you might need this residential program. It was good. But when you're in there, there's a lot of other unwell people in there. And we're all together, which means that we all make friends, which can be good in some ways but it can be really hard in other ways, especially when you're trying to get better because 
most people in there don't actually want to get better. So they're still deep in their disorders and you just have to try and ignore it so that you can get better. It can be quite hard in residential. That's the only negative. The 24-7 support, fabulous, hands down. It's hard when there's lots of patients around and you don't want to get to know them too much, but then it's kind of hard to when you don't interact with anyone else. So yeah, I was there for three months. Then I started year 12. This is where it goes downhill. So this is all before year 12. I have a boyfriend. What's the best thing to do with a boyfriend when you're 16? Move out together. Of course. Of course. <laughs> of course. It's just such a smart idea to do. So that's what I did. We drank a lot. We smoked weed. We just were not very good people. I didn't get involved in a lot of things. But I just did nothing. I was just a bum. And I hated it, but I loved it at the same time. I was using it as an escapism from everything. <laughs> and there was no expectation on you. There was no expectation on me, no. Nothing. My attendance at school dropped. I wasn't going down a very good path at all. But then, blessing in disguise, he ended up cheating on me, thank God, because I then got left that situation. It was really unfortunate, though, because I lost my best friend at the time to that relationship because everyone decided to take his side, which is another weird thing. But after this, it really spurred on my eating disorder. So I had a really bad relapse. And by March of that year, I was hospitalized anorexia. I was in the hospital for that, trying to heal while year 12 going on. I had a really good time in year 12. I just didn't attend school very often. So yeah, I ended up getting out of hospital after about two weeks and went back to school and it was fine. It was really weird because I didn't talk to anyone because I thought that everyone had their eyes on me or that was watching me or this girl was sending around stuff about me. And I knew that, but I didn't know who had read it, who had not who's going to believe her, who doesn't. So I just went into myself. I didn't talk to anyone. I didn't do anything, which is really shitty because it's year 12. I kind of want to be with my friends. The girl who I was living with, she ended up dropping out of high school and I don't talk to her anymore. She said sorry and stuff, but there's not much that can change what happened, especially because it was really bad. Like I had people threatening to bash me, threatening to crash my car, to just... I, I couldn't leave my house without this overwhelming feeling of someone is going to get me. I wasn't very good at maintaining my weight. It was kept dropping, but I, medically I was fine. And then I don't know what happened, but something in me just like clicked. I don't know what it was. I don't know. But I was like, you know what? I'm actually done with this. I don't want to do with this anymore. I've done it long enough. I'm good. And so I decided then and there, just kind of on the spot, I was like, Actually, I don't care. I kind of want to go to uni. Can't I just live a normal life? And then, so I just tried to forget it all. By this time, I've had so many diagnoses, it wasn't funny. I graduated year 12 with 32% attendance. So you're meant to get kicked out with that. But me being me, I had a good old conversation too. I was in special ed at this point because of my ASD and ADHD and other stuff. But yes, so they tried to kick me out several times, but I basically went up to them and I'm like, well, even though I'm only here 32% of the time, look at your grades. I'm definitely not on the bottom and I'm also on that ATAR pathway. So I'm actually helping you by staying in the school because I'm getting you up there because it was a public school, it was a private school. But yes, yeah, so they kind of couldn't kick me up because I was very adamant and I was like, no, nah, I want to graduate. I'm getting all the grades. What's the problem? How are you getting good grades? I don't know. <laughs> Trust me, I don't even know. 
yeah, so high school I just breezed through, which is I'm very thankful With for. With 32% attendance. I ended up getting an okay ATAR, but I didn't use it. I just went for early entry. Well, at this time I was like, oh, I'm going to be a nurse. So I applied for like some nursing things in UTAS. And so I got into their two-year accelerated nursing program. And I was like, sick, that's what I'm going to do. And I'd also gotten into their psychological science program because I was like, yep, I'm going to do this. And then they're really good at doing the brain. So I want to do the brain. That's where I want to go. Brain research, brain research, research, brain research. Ended up getting into everything I wanted. But my mom was like, oh, I just want you to stay home. I was adamant that I was moving out either way. So we went to all of the open days at all of the unis in Queensland and around Brisbane. And she dragged me along. And me being me, I'd already done my prior research. So I knew at that point that I wanted to do psychology, not nursing. And I just showed her how each of the courses laid out. And I said, don't want to do that. Don't want to do that. Don't want to do that. You know where I don't have to do that? UTAS. I hadn't looked at UNE yet. My mum was like, you should look at UNE. I think, I reckon you'll like it. We've got family just outside of Tamworth. So we'd been going there all the time, but I'd never been to Armadale before. I never looked at the uni. I never did any of it. So it was just before their early entries closed. So I did a tour of the uni and of the colleges. I toured Duval College and I toured Mary White. You know what? That's actually really cool because at the time I had an obsession with Harry Potter. And if anyone looks up pictures of Duval College, it looks exactly like Harry Potter. I was set. So I put it in for what I wanted and I looked at the psychology course and I'm like, oh, they actually do offer what I want. Sorry, mum, moving to Armadale. I've chosen to do psychological science, majoring in criminology, but I'm looking at mastering in neuroscience because I don't want to be clinical. Taylor, it's incredible to hear your story as it's gone and to think that it was only a heartbeat ago that you were saying that you were in and out of hospital, that you were feeling the worst you felt, you attended 32% of school and then you're like, here, I'm at uni and now I'm studying. It's like, what just happened? Like what just happened? Has something changed in you, for you, around you? Are you feeling good just at the moment? This year hasn't been perfect. I had a planned admission earlier this year to change medications. I've just gotten out of an admission because I had a really small eating disorder relapse, but because my body is a bit broken. It just decided to go, blah, blah, blah. It's not perfect. I don't want it to, to come across like, oh my God, life's perfect now. It's just not as bad as it was, which means that something's working. I got a flick in my head, which is how I say it, where I think I would have said, you know, oh yeah, I want to get better. Yeah, I want to get better. But I wouldn't do the things that I needed to in order to get better, if that makes sense. Whereas now I'm actively doing that. I understand myself a lot more. So I know what to ask for in therapy. So like right now I'm doing ACT, which is a lot about accepting your symptoms as they are because I've got a lifelong symptom. It's, it's not going to go away. And I'm also going to be doing EMDR. It's really good. It's a trauma-based therapy. And so that should help a ton with my CPTSD, which we're hoping is the main thing. Look, it's not perfect, but I'm definitely doing way better than I was. And I think it's just, you've got to make a change within you. It's nothing anyone else can do or say. It's just you. So why this conversation? Why now? I think that some people think that, well, one, that everyone with autism looks and acts the same. And a lot of the time, if someone is difficult or doesn't have the best high school experience or whatever, they kind of just stop, if that makes sense, instead of going on. Because I wanted to drop out so many times. Oh, my God. But I didn't. I want things to change and for people to learn from my situation because I think there's a lot to learn and thankfully the world is learning and I want to try and help with that. 
I know that there are some young people on here. There's a whole range that listen to you. It's also interesting to see different age groups taking on similar issues. So I reached out to you after Hannah. I was listening to her story and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I firstly just reached out to you to say thank you for sharing it. I kind of went through your old shows and I didn't really show, you had a lot of different things, but not when it's all at once, because I kind of have bits of a lot of different stories. It's actually just one story and that's a bit different to what I've heard. There's so many pieces that make up your story, so many different parts to it. Yeah. And I want people to know that, yes, it can happen all at once. And yeah, I know it feels like it's a ton and that no one kind of understands you because usually it's just you've got one or two things. But sometimes you've got the whole kitten caboodle or sometimes you don't have any and you've got a friend with the kitten caboodle. It's really hard sometimes for people to understand. And so by sharing this, I really just want more people to be more conscious of what's going on and especially what they say and how they treat people because I don't think anyone in my story did it intentionally or maliciously. They didn't want me to turn out the way I did. But it happened. I know that I would have hurt people. I know that I I feel for my poor mother. Like, my poor mum had to go through this. At the end of the day, 9 out of 10 people aren't trying to hurt you purposefully. They want to help. And hopefully by listening to this conversation, they can see, oh, maybe I know someone that was in that position. And that it didn't happen overnight. Oh, no, it doesn't. And it's not a quick fix. That's the thing. And it's not easy. But it's not hard. Just give it a try. Because you never know. You never know. And Taylor, sitting here now after sharing your story with us, Mm. what do you need to say to you? Well, that's a hard one. (laughs) Probably like you've done good. You're okay. You didn't fail. Like you're fine. Because I think that was my biggest fear was that I was just going to be like this forever, that I hated everything. And life isn't sunshines and rainbows, but I don't want to kill myself. I've been to the darkest, darkest places. I've been to the best of the bestest places. And life isn't always just ups and downs. There's sometimes gray area. And I'm learning to love this gray area and thrive in it. Because me, this time last year, I wouldn't be where I am. I can say that without a doubt. For everyone listening that knows you, that's in your world now, how can they walk beside you through this next chapter? How can they walk beside you through this next little phase of your life where you're thriving in the grey? Well, I don't want them to listen to this and think of me any differently (laughs) because, like, it happened and that's it. I am who I am now. Like, my close friends know bits and pieces, but no one knows the full story. But also I don't think anyone knows how much I get it when I try and help people. Because it's hard to explain that I've been there without explaining the whole thing. But I hope that, like, this can help them because a lot of the times you feel alone and you wouldn't be able to pick me on the street if this happened. But yet, here I am. If you know me, you'll know that you wouldn't have never, ever pictured that this is all part of my story. And take that as you don't know anyone's story. Anyone can look or act like however they want. But guess what? We've all got shit. (laughs) Everyone's got shit. And I think that's the important thing that I want people to get out of this. And Taylor, I can only imagine the incredible path that you're going to mow into the future. Like I just have this image in my mind of like this beautiful green grass and then this like dead set massive wide path going through it because you're just going to 
change the world. I hope so. You have what it takes to do what you want to do in life and you've got enough experience under your belt to know what it all can look like if you don't step up to the plate. And I have full faith hearing you today that you are there and you are stepping up into the life that you want to live, how you want to live it with an understanding of the things that you need to change to make it a safe and comfortable world for you. Oh, thanks, Sally. It's really nice. And Taylor, I love to finish every episode with asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to be really basic and very Gen Z of me. I'm going to say TikTok only because there's just so many different things that you can find on there that you would never find before and things that shouldn't be funny are just belly laugh funny. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Taylor. There's a huge part of me that comes up, I guess, around protection for you. That's what's sitting with me, the emotion that's sitting with me as we finish and close off. I want to keep you safe. I want to be able to stand with you. It makes me cry just saying it because you're so brave to come on here and have the conversation. Like I'm sure it's not easy. And I just take my hat off to you for having the courage Thank you. to open up your life to others, to help forage the path for them. If my story has anything, I just want it to help. Like any of it. If it's like, oh, my kid does that, and then getting them assessed for autism. Or if it's just, oh, maybe my friend is acting a bit weird about food. Maybe I should go check on that. Like just things like that. It doesn't need to be personal. If I just, someone's listening to this and then can get something out of it or thinks about it later, that's all I need. I'm happy. Thank you so much. Thank you. When we finished the episode, Taylor and I had a really good conversation. I wanted to check with her that this is the right time to release her story. That protective part came up so much as I was listening. I, I just wanted to hug her and hold her. And and then there was this other part of me that was like holding the torch beside her, being like, what a woman, what an incredible, incredible young woman that is seriously going to do something amazing in this world for people that are coming in behind her. She is so articulate in her experience and understanding and has had such challenging and rich life experience that is just going to bring a wealth of knowledge and understanding to anything that she applies herself to. So thank you, Taylor, so much for coming on and sharing your story with our listeners. And for those of you, if any of you want to reach out to someone Talk to someone in your world. Lifeline is here to listen on 13, 11, 14. And if you think this episode could be valuable to someone else, listening to it might help them, please share it. Please pass this on or jump on and subscribe because that is how we spread the word and that is how we help more Australians, more people around the world. And it is through stories that we can feel more connected and less isolated. Otherwise, I am going to see you legends next Monday for another episode of Challenges That Change Us. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.